Hey, Popaganda listeners, here's a quick message from our sponsor, Oregon State University. Earn your women, gender, and sexuality studies degree online. Explore the role of race, social class, age, ability, appearance, and sexual identity. Play in women's everyday lives. Join the nation of do what you love. Push up your sleeves, make the world better. Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Sometimes people ask me how I came to identify as a feminist, and I have no good answer to this. It's just always been a part of my life. Growing up, I believed ardently in equality and was taught about gender discrimination from a young age. I was that fourth grader who would go on rants about the need to elect a female president. A better question is more like, at what point did I realize that this isn't what everyone thinks? I was raised thinking that it's very normal for a woman to have strong opinions and for boys to cry. I was raised to question everything, and I was raised to wear whatever I wanted. I remember some other kid in my second grade class telling me that I was supposed to sit in my chair a different way, that the way I was sitting was unladylike. Instead of sitting however I wanted, I was supposed to daintily cross my legs. At the time, I thought that was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. I was like, surely you're joking, right? You're telling me there's a way I'm supposed to sit because I'm a girl and I'm doing it wrong? Get out of here. The process of growing up was a process of realizing how much the things that I think of as normal are not actually normal for everyone. The things that I think of as basic human rights and essential ways to interact with the world are instead called feminist. On today's show, we're looking at ways to help kids grow up to be more open-minded adults in the future. We'll hear from writer Margaret Jacobson about how she talks to her kids about dating, marriage, and open relationships. We'll also hear from Kristen Rousseau, author of the book, This is the Book for Parents of Gay Kids, about raising all children to be LGBTQ friendly. And we'll hear advice from propaganda listeners who called in to share what they've learned about raising open-minded kids. Putting together today's show, I kept coming back to this question about how I wound up the way that I am about how I saw feminism as so normal growing up. I decided to get right to the source, to call my parents and just ask. Hi. Hey, how are you, Sarah? How are you doing? I'm good. Yep, those are my parents. (laughs) The first thing people notice about my family is that my older brother Dan and I call our parents by their first names, John and Marquita, never mom and dad. This is definitely less unusual now that we're in our 30s, but we were the only little kids in our elementary school who talked about having to ask John if we could come over to play or how Marquita would pick us up from basketball practice. This is one of those parenting decisions that I was hoping we could talk about. But because I called two days before the election, before I talked about any feminist parenting stuff, my mom wanted to talk about politics. We're very, very stressed out in terms of, you know, what's going to happen here. So it's just been unending. Do you guys have a yard sign up or have you been doing any kind of phone banking or anything? We've been, uh, we had a yard sign up for um, for, a, for a local candidate, but we decided not to put up a yard sign for Hillary because it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that it'll be, that, that it'll, it'll go for uh, Hillary here in California. And we also don't want to annoy people because we know that if we put up a Hillary sign and the people across the street puts up a Trump sign, that we'll have to sit and we'll look at the Trump sign every single day. <laughs> so... That would be extremely annoying. Finally, we got around to the big topic at hand. We talked for about an hour, so this is a very abridged version of our conversation. What can we do for you, Sarah? Ask me a question. (laughs) Okay, Okay, here's the question. um, What sort of things did you try and do with uh, me and Dan when we were growing up to being open-minded, critical-thinking, feminist people? Do you remember any intentional choices you made or any conversations you had about how you wanted to raise us? Yes. That was pretty um, pretty much the foundation of our um, our marriage, really, in the beginning, was about uh, treating each person as an individual. So 
you'll notice when we got married, Marquita kept her name. And when you and Dan were being raised, we didn't call each other Mommy and Daddy. We called each other John and Marquita. And we really made an effort, at least I did, to um, treat each of you as a person and to, we really, I, I really worked hard at, from the beginning, allowing you to make choices about things so that you got used to doing that and that process. I mean, I think there were some real conscious decisions made um, on our part because of, of um, roles that we did not want to play. I think John really wanted to be a very highly involved parent. And I think that was partly because his dad was gone months at a time when he was being raised. And so I think he was really wanting to have a different kind of a family lifestyle. And I think uh, it, it was partly a product of the 60s. I think we were really looking at kind of the the rigid roles that, that perhaps our parents had been in. And I think when we kind of came together as a couple, we just had, I think we had a more balanced relationship in terms of uh, more flexibility in terms of roles. And so I think that basic coming together and sort of having more flexibility about um, who was going to be at home, who was going to be working, um, I think that really shaped a lot of what followed in terms of uh, family life. I don't know. I was remembering some of the things that would happen when Dan was a young, a, a younger, when he was really a young boy. He would say things that, and then, that, and then when I look back, I just kind of laughed. And I do remember one time him saying, we were talking about something, and he turned to me, and was sort of saying, we're going to do something a certain way. And he turned to me and said, can we discuss this? And he was like a really kid, can we talk about this? And I thought, you know, when I looked back and I thought, wow, where did he get that expression? And I think he must have gotten it from listening to his parents or, you know, other people in his life, because that's very, that's a, that's a fairly mature thing to say, can we discuss this? Yeah, yeah. I, like that, I, like that stra I like that strategy of toddler negotiation, where he doesn't want to do yeah. something. And he was probably right. how old, like three or four? And instead of yeah, saying, he no, was really young. Can we talk about this? Can we discuss this? Rather than just getting into a, a battle, you know, you have to do this or you don't have to do that. What, what I have to really say, Sarah, that was really fascinating to me about really thinking about all of this was it wasn't that we thought, oh, we're going to raise children that are a certain way, right? What we really thought about was the relationship that we wanted to have and how we wanted to be involved with raising our children. And then I think we were very fortunate that we both really wanted you and Dan to, um, to have a lot of sense of self-respect and self-worth and uh, we, you know, we just, it, it just worked out for us that way. So what would have happened if you guys gave us all these options and all this critical thinking and we wound up as Trump supporters? <laughs> That'd be really sad. Big <laughs> <laughs> drastic measures. Thanks to my parents for agreeing to talk to me for this show. Margaret Jacobson writes beautifully on a bunch of different difficult topics. For example, last December, Margaret, who is Black and lives in Portland, Oregon, did an experiment where she kept track of all the racist things people said to her over the course of two weeks. And instead of working to be nice and polite in response, she'd tell them exactly what she thought. When a white woman stopped her in a coffee shop, for example, and reached out to touch her hair without asking... Margaret reached right back and ran her hand through the stranger's hair, commenting that it was rather stringy. A lot of what Margaret writes about is being a parent. On the website Romper and on her own Instagram, she posts photos of her kids and writes honest, vulnerable stories about raising her two children. She also writes about being in an open relationship, her divorce last year, having a miscarriage, and is generally an amazing role model for talking about those things most people fear to discuss. So can you tell us a little bit about what your family looks like? Who's in your family? Okay, so I was married legally up until like May um, with my ex-husband. 
and we have two kids together. We live seven minutes apart um, in the same town. Um, the kids go back and forth, um, just split time between us each week. And then I have a partner, and my ex-husband also has a partner, and I have another partner <laughs> outside of the home. So usually at my house, there's the four of us, so me, my partner Noah, and the kids. And then I have my partner um, Pace, who lives, you know, in the city, but will come and, like, eat meals with us and go places with us and do things like that. So... That's kind of, that's what it looks like. That's who I would say is in our family, like in our immediate circle. That sounds really sweet. And like, there's it a big, I just imagine this like dinner <laughs> table with like a cornucopia on it. <laughs> and like I everybody mean, eating delightfully together. Like toys that have been pushed aside on the table <laughs> so we can eat dinner. But okay. It's probably more like bowls of Cheerios and like yeah, something's everywhere. Fire, always, but. always. It's always crazy. <laughs> Um, well, there's a million things I could talk to you about, but I want to mm-hmm. focus on talking to your kids about relationships and non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go back in time to your first marriage. Yes. Um, and you and your husband had an open relationship. And one issue with talking about open relationships is when you say non-monogamy, people instantly think like swingers, yes. orgies, yes. sex all the time. Yeah. Can you describe what open relationships mean to you? And- it is not sex all the time. It's a lot of conversations over and over and over. Um, when we opened up, my husband and I, it came after I, I had had an affair. And so I would say we weren't the most educated on it. Like I had done some reading and I realized like, oh, me wanting relationships outside of my husband isn't actually bad. And that was for me, like, Googling, because I was like, I have, like, these feelings. I feel like I could like other people outside of my husband. And I grew up Christian, and so it's like monogamy is, like, the only way. And we talked about it, and my ex-husband was, like, very, like, ugh, I don't want to do it. And I was like, no, let's try it, you know, because everything I was reading in books and on the Internet, I just felt like it made sense for me and who I was. And I would say I kind of pushed my ex-husband to do it, even though I don't think that's, like, who he was. And it was a lot harder (laughs) than I thought it was going to be. I thought that it would just be really easy to find people to date that were fine with me being married, but then people associate it with, like, cheating. And they're also... I feel like people were almost more willing if it was actual cheating than the being honest that is like a thing I ran into. People are like, wait, so your husband is okay with this? I'm like, yes, it is a conversation we had. We can go on this date and like we can make out. Um, Hence why there was not all of the sex and there isn't all of the sex (laughs) or orgies for that matter. Um, But I learned a lot in that process because I had to unlearn a lot of rules that I had given to relationships about I can't tell my partner that I find this person attractive because that is the same as cheating because that's what I learned in church like if you check someone out it's like that is just as bad as like having sex with them so I had to unlearn the process that would like go on in my head where I would be like oh I don't need to tell my husband about these things I did, even though that was like part of it. And that's a really big part of non-monogamy is being open and having the conversation and being that honest. And we did finally reach a point where we could be so honest with each other. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is like Nirvana for relationships. How brilliant. Like we can just talk about all of it. Like I can tell you that I found this person to be really hot and these are the, the qualities I like about them. And you can tell me and Sure, we encountered, like, the jealousy, but I was like, this is so cool. It's so interesting that you mentioned that other people outside of the relationship were potentially more hostile to the idea of an open relationship than the idea of cheating. And I think Mm -hmm. that's because when you're raised thinking about monogamy as the norm, cheating makes sense in that context. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, people lie, people do that. Mm -hmm. But the idea that there's a completely different way of going about your life is pretty radical and, uh, and makes people really stop and be like, I don't understand. <laughs> no, I I always like 
I was just talking to my um, ex-husband about this, and I was like, I don't know why people act so surprised when I tell them these things. And he's like, because, it, you know, like you were saying, like, it's not the norm, but it's become my, like, normal life, and... I've, I mean, I've figured out as much as I can figure out, and I'm going to keep figuring it out, how it works. But I do remember also thinking, like, that's ridiculous, because there's always the first thing that people go to is, like, jealousy. Like, how do you deal with jealousy? And that's actually my favorite question that people ask, because I've learned so much about myself by facing my jealousy and not, like, I think it'd be one thing if I just pretended it didn't exist like I think I had already done in my life because there was no need for me to face it or be honest with it. But like it made me realize that I felt possessive of another human, which was odd. Like another human is not mine. (laughs) And I had to relearn my language around that too, where I was like, but you're mine, you know? And it's like, oh my God, no, why am I saying those things? And being jealous of another person and like, it was like, why Why do I get jealous of these people? And I know, and it's like an insecure thing. And then I face that and I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, cool. I just learned this other thing about me that I didn't realize that I had feelings about. So what kind of conversations did you have um, with your ex-husband about how to talk about this with your kids? And how did it finally come up with them? We didn't really talk about it with them until we decided that we weren't going to be together. And so it was interesting because when we told the kids that we were going to um, divorce and not be together anymore, we had been dating other people, and they knew these people. And when we explained to them that we had these other relationships, they they weren't like, oh, what? They were like, oh, okay. Like, you love another person. And I feel like my daughter already believed that that's a thing that could happen. And how old is she? She is seven now. She's about to be eight. And one time, I think she was four, and I was doing her hair, and she said, we were in the bathroom, and she was like, when are you going to get a boyfriend? And I was like, no, I'm married to your dad. She <laughs> so, was like, so yeah. So she asked but... you, when are you going to get a boyfriend? <laughs> yeah, and she said, I just want more adults to love me. And it was really beautiful, and also just like, I was like, how does she know that like that's what I want out of my life? And so... um like the other day we were talking in the car and I was like, oh, you know, Pace is my partner. And she was like, oh, I thought you were just dating. That's really cool that they're all like your partner now. And to my kids, they're like, oh, more people that love us and are here for us. And I think that's my favorite thing about non-monogamy is that my family just has grown and my kids just see it as such. And it is weird and disheartening when people are like, oh, you just want your cake and eat it too. I'm like, no, it's hard work. It's so hard having two partners. <laughs> it is not just sex all the time. Who is this person just having sex? Well, first of all, your kids sound wonderful. Like They're wonderful pretty rad kids. Um, so when you finally did start talking to them about um, dating other people when mm-hmm. you and your husband were splitting up, how did you approach that? And what were your fears or concerns? I guess, so my parents were really, like, didn't talk to us about anything that seemed too adult when we were kids. And I feel like I'm just the opposite with my kids. Like, I just talk to them about everything, and I don't make it a big thing. Like, I just throw it into our normal conversation. So me and my kids just talk about everything, and it's very normal. So it was just a a regular conversation where I was like, oh, I'm going to go on a date, you know, with Noah and... Sometimes I also date this person. They were like, that sounds cool. You know, they were just like, all right. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about how kids don't make a big deal out of something until yeah. they realize it's a big deal to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little bit like testing rules or boundaries mm-hmm. where when they realize something matters a lot to you, suddenly they're like, oh, what is that? And can yeah. I poke at it mm-hmm. incessantly? Yeah, my kids don't <laughs> care. Like, it's so normal to them. It's like how... When they went to school and they mostly go to school with white kids and they're mixed. And my daughter came home and was so confused that there were so many parents that were like a white mom and a white dad. <laughs> and mm. that it was just a mom and dad. There were no like just dads or like moms. And she's like, why doesn't anyone have a family that looked like, you know, mine? It was so normal for her to like be in a mixed race home. 
and to be around lots of different people. And so my kids, their normal is just, I guess, not the normal normal, but they don't know anything else. Like, they're like, oh, this is my life. Okay. And so I think that's the thing. So people always are like, but what about the children? Aren't you concerned that they're going to get weird ideas? And I'm like, what ideas is my kid going to get? I treat all of my relationships the same way. So even if I was like just in a monogamous relationship, that's what I mirror. There's not this huge difference. Um, At least not around the children, you know, or in like the home when we're just hanging out. It's literally just people hanging out and we're this family. And I think it's so beautiful and so uplifting. And I think my kids are so lucky that they like have two homes and like in those two homes, you know, are like another set of like parents and then some. And I think it's really healthy. So I'm wondering, what are some ways you try and instill your kids with really healthy ideas about relationships? Because there's so much in our society <laughs> that is gives really terrible advice and really terrible role models for relationships. Mm-hmm. I mean, just turn on the TV or watch most movies hinge around relationships that are that are pretty bad, you know, yeah. where stalking is considered romantic, Ugh. where jealousy is Ugh. something to aspire to, and where there's, you know, you the the, yeah. the, the end the age old quest is for Ugh. a monogamous union. So how do you try and counter that in your conversations with your kids? I think just using my relationship as an example and then there have just been times like so my daughter will talk about when she grows up and gets married and she's like, I'm going to get married five times. And, you know, we're like, <laughs> we're not paying for you to be married five times. And she's like, I want a lot of different husbands and a wife. And I'm like, that's fine. But weddings are expensive. Um, but we talk about how love is not meant for just one person. And if you want it to be that way, that's fine. But if you want to love multiple people, that's also okay. So we kind of are like monogamy and non-monogamy are great. We don't necessarily use the words monogamy and non-monogamy. We just talk about relationships and people we love. That's just how it's phrased. And, you know, my son is like, loves this one girl at school. And he's like, someday we're going to get married. I, She might not want to marry me, but she wants to be with me forever. And that's cool. You know, and like, that's it for him. And my daughter is like, I have a crush on these 10 people. I love everyone. I want to be with all of them. And so I'm just like, cool, let's talk about what that would look like. And, you know, and then she's like, it sounds hard. I couldn't date all these people. And I'm like, narrow it down to like one or two. You don't have to (laughs) date all of them. (laughs) And so we talk about things like that. And we talk about behavior, like little boys, like chasing little girls or little girls chasing little boys and like the hitting thing. And I'm like, that's not love. And that's not liking someone that's like using abuse and it's not kind. And so we talk about kindness around it a lot. And we talk about communication and having conversations with people. So when my daughter's like, oh, I like this person. I'm like, oh, did you tell them? Did you have a conversation? How, how do they feel about you? Are you just going to be friends? And usually she's like, yeah, I talked to this person. And, you know, I'm like, you're seven. You don't really need to have these conversations. But I like that my kids use a lot of words to describe their feelings. And I know that I've really gotten good at advocating for myself by being non-monogamous because I have to show up for myself in these relationships, especially if I'm communicating with so many different people. And I'm also like an ambassador from like my other relationship and having to like stand in the gap for like multiple people. And so... I think it's helped with my language and then I think I've passed it on to the kids. And I, I'm i proud of how they talk about love and family and relationships. And I'm proud of how they are able to put words to their feelings. I would think one of the biggest challenges around being in an open relationship and having kids would be uh, the rest of your family, like parents or extended yeah. family, and also <laughs> other people's parents, other kids' yeah. parents. Um, how do you approach those conversations and do you try to be super open about it or are you like I don't want to deal with this right now I so my parents don't really use the internet or social media <laughs> but my Which helps for you <laughs> yeah but my sister will like pass things on and I think my dad has said to my brother like because he was my brother called me and he was like yeah dad doesn't understand why you are dating all these people but you have a partner and I told him not to worry about it because it's your life and it doesn't matter 
like you're gonna do as you please and basically my dad's just like I don't understand <laughs> I don't know what this means um and then my in-laws so I still call my ex-husband's family like my in-laws I would say they're very aware they don't say anything to me I think they have moments where they're concerned but it's never been this big thing and that was the thing that I thought about because I had read about like extended family taking families to court and going after them and being like it's an unsafe you know unfit environment but it hasn't been like that and we don't and with everyone at like the kids school I'm pretty honest about it if we have a play date and I'm talking about my life and you know sometimes people are like oh what okay and they try to play it cool like they like know a bunch of people who are non-monogamous and if they ask me questions I'm gonna respond and my whole life's on the internet so um I am in the camp of being extremely transparent with my life because if I don't do it, I don't want to wait around for someone else to be that example for me. I'm curious about whether there's been moments that your kids have um, brought up to you or questions that they've asked have been challenging around relationships where maybe they've described an experience or asked you a question where you're mm -hmm. like, oh, I want to get this right. <laughs> I feel like this is a high stakes situation and, and I, I want to navigate know. it well. I have no idea. I think the other day, oh, when my daughter and I were talking about um, Pace being my partner, she was like, oh, are you going to marry Pace too? And I was like, no, I can't marry, you know, I can't marry. And then she was just like, why? If you love that person too and they're your partner, why can't you just, and I was like, oh, <laughs> I, I wasn't prepared to answer that question like at all. And that also isn't a thing I've thought of, really. Like, I just never have. So I was like, ah, oh, I think, you know, people marry one person. That's what's legally allowed. She was just like, I don't understand. That makes no sense to me. <laughs> and I was like, I guess it doesn't make sense to me either. And then I had to sit and really think about my um, thoughts around, like, marriage. Because I am getting married again. And... People have asked me, like, why would you do that if you are polyamorous and you got divorced? <laughs> do you, how do you believe in marriage? And I'm, I do believe in it to, like, a certain degree. I believe in that, like, contract and that, like, commitment. So, like, even though I'm not married to my ex-husband anymore, like, we still feel that commitment to love each other through all of the things. Like, those vows that we said we still honor to, like, a certain degree. How do you think talking about non-monogamy and um, an open view of relationships impacted the way your kids saw your divorce and your upcoming next marriage? I think they just were like, oh, this is normal. You just love people. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, they were sad about me and their dad not being together. But my daughter's also been like, now I have another set of grandparents and hopefully I'll have another one. And I have step-parents, and she's so psyched that her dream of having multiple adults to love her <laughs> is coming true. And my son, I think, is just like, okay, you know, he's just like, oh, this is my mom's partner, this is my mom's boyfriend. He just talks so nonchalantly with his friends, and I think sometimes his friends are like, what? Your mom has dates two people? And he'll just be like, yeah. <laughs> sounds pretty nonchalant yeah like sounds pretty cool <laughs> yeah it's just not a big thing I feel like it's that thing where like I still do all of the normal mom things you know and I mean what else would I do I Almost. wonder if they're gonna rebel as teenagers I know be like I'm only gonna date one person forever I sometimes think that and I feel like they'll like go off to college and meet all these people and they'll be like oh my god my mom's so weird <laughs> they'll be like can you just come with one of your partners <laughs> or none of them just come by yourself to this thing don't embarrass us so we'll see what it's like when they're older but I'm also like not that worried about it
ask 100 people for advice on raising feminist kids, and you'll get 100 different answers. That's what I found out when we asked Propaganda listeners to call in and tell us one way that they try to help the next generation of kids grow up to be feminist adults. I'm excited to share listener advice from the stories that you all shared with us. Some of the pieces of advice in this segment are voice memos that listeners recorded for themselves, and some are emails that I asked bitch staffers to read aloud. There's so much smart and heartwarming advice here. Let's listen. This is Allison McCabe. I have a nine-year-old and seven-year-old twins, all boys. I'm of the Judith Butler generation, so if you asked me before I had kids how I raise boys versus girls, I would have said both. But then life happens, and you realize you have less ability to socially construct your kids than you think. In my experience, boys are different than girls. When my kids were little, my friends' daughters were happy to sit close by and scribble away in their coloring books. My boys launched their crayons as projectiles. I used to prohibit all violent video games. Now I encourage the educational ones, where they have to shoot, say, the letter H, rather than anything resembling a human or animal. Are their destructive impulses worthy of hand-wringing? Signs they'll grow up to become warlords or serial killers? Probably not. I try to raise my kids without imposing my political views on them, even good ones like feminism. Instead, I try to nurture who they are and understand that we only ever have glimpses of who they'll become. If we respect them, we have a chance at earning their respect, which may help them to respect the differences of others, which is not only feminists, but to me, the point of feminism. Hi, my name is Lisa Frack, and I have a 13-year-old, almost 14-year-old boy and a 10-year-old girl. And we think a lot about um, how to raise my son in particular to be a feminist. And when I say we, I should really say I, because um, he's not super interested in my efforts. Um, and in addition to the regular, you know, uh, commenting on sexist advertising and sexist media and all that, um, there's two things in particular that I think come up for us over and over that I'm consciously working on. One has to do with the word stop which of course ultimately deals with the concept of consent. Um, the two of my kids together definitely use the word stop a lot and they don't always listen to each other. Um, the second thing that we're really working on is has to do with accepting other people's truths, um, particularly, of course, when they're different than your own. Um, this happens a lot with my boy towards my girl, where if she feels differently than he does, um, he sees it as lesser. And so um, the lesson I'm trying to get across is that different isn't lesser, and that the way one does something isn't the right way, it's just a way. You know what, I don't have my own kids, but when I talk to other people's kids, I don't comment about their appearance or what they're wearing. Uh, instead, I just try to ask them about the books they're reading, and I give them a lot of options about physical contact when we're saying hi or goodbye. If they don't want to hug, they can high-five, shake hands, or wave instead. My son, Evan, is a year and a half, and as we're reading children's books and singing songs, I like to switch up the gender roles. So as we're singing Wheels on the Bus, sometimes the mommies go shh, 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 and sometimes the daddies go shh, shh, shh. So I'm a single mom to a pretty amazing little eight-year-old girl. My whole thing is I'm trying to model empowerment and the ability we all have to make an impact on society. It is a million little things. We are decluttering and she wanted to sell her toys and donate the money to a worthy charity rather than simply giving them away. So we had a garage sale and I took her down to the women's shelter for a tour and she presented the check. We did it again this past year. When we go grocery shopping, I give her a small budget and have her pick out the food she wants to donate. One of the big challenges for me as the mother of a daughter has been dealing with um, just how much sexualized material comes her way, whether it's the body shapes of toys for girls or lyrics in popular music that she hears with friends or out in the world. It's really outrageous. And um, as Peggy Orenstein talks about in her brilliant book, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, it's a double bind for parents because the material is sexually inappropriate, but young people even understanding 
about sexual inappropriateness is in and of itself sexually inappropriate. So we can't explain why we don't want them to have these things and we can't even explain why it's inappropriate. Um, So one of the things that I've been developing is sort of language to talk about sexually inappropriate toys and um, narratives that is actually age appropriate. So one thing I remember with Barbie that I talked about was that Barbie had on high heels all the time and she couldn't play soccer or run for the bus or play tag with her friends that, you know, there was a way to think about her in my daughter's world as helpless, right? That she's perpetually helpless because of the fashion. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, I don't believe in Barbie having to do with these high heels. We disparage the idea of boys versus girls things, clothes, toys, and jobs. We buy for them what is interesting and part of their repertoire, to the point where they point out how ridiculous it is to have those distinctions in stores. They wrestle, they play soccer, and do gymnastics, and play with their dolls and Legos, and do their nails and rock climb and climb trees. No thing is off limits, as long as it's age appropriate. What did my parents do right in raising me as a feminist kid? Uh, I mean, above everything else, they didn't shout it down my throat. They always, you know, from when I was five or six years old, my dad picked me up from kindergarten one day and just for whatever reason went to his passionate um, speech about how, you know, we were all equal, all humans, you know, race, gender, class, you know, none of that meant anything, religion. And, you know, he was doing that when he was picking me up from a Catholic school in a small town. And that just became kind of, you know, my golden rule going forth for uh, the rest of my life. They just let me kind of come to my own conclusions. They kind of stated their own, their, their viewpoints and then kind of created a household where I was free to come to, you know, explore my own uh, choices and or beliefs. And then, you know, decide for myself that I'm a feminist and that means you know, that's a core belief of mine. So I work in an independent bookshop as a children's specialist. And I think one of the most important things about raising feminist kids is to teach them to think critically about the media they're consuming, even from a really young age. Like, if I hear children gendering a book, I try to really push back against that and say, well, you know, why is that for girls or why is that for boys? and help create a dialogue around how they're viewing books and also how they're viewing the world around them. Um, I always like to give them options outside of the gender they're assumed to be. So I'll always ask, like, what kind of stories would you like to read about? You know, would you like to read friendship stories or adventure stories or pirate stories or mermaid stories? You know, whatever it is. Um, I make sure to, like, really give them a lot of choices. And I think it's important to create a safe space for kids to think about gender and start thinking about gender as a spectrum from a really young age because I think that goes hand in hand with feminist consciousness. Hi, my name is Chris and I am a former teacher and summer camp, kids camp counselor. And I have two ways that I try to um, keep feminism in mind as I'm interacting with children. One is, um, from my own experience, um, I experienced domestic violence in my early 20s. And one of the things I learned is a major risk factor for which women might end up in um, experiencing intimate partner violence is growing up in an emotionally invalidating environment. Um, and so I work hard to try to validate children's emotions and and develop emotional intelligence in them. And I think that has a lot of important impacts. Ways that I do that include asking children to describe what they're feeling and, and mirroring that back to them and saying, you feel this way because this. And trying to develop that um, trust in their own emotional experience and their ability to identify and describe their emotional experience. Another way that I try to be aware of feminism and interacting with children is the idea of consent. Uh, A lot of us were raised with the idea that it's okay for adults to roughhouse with you or make you hug or kiss them. And I try to teach children that their body is their own body. And when they say 
they don't want to be touched or tickled or they don't want to hug someone, that that will be respected. And that it's not a funny thing to continue to roughhouse with a child after they ask you to stop. It actually teaches them that they don't have control over their own bodies. Thanks. First of all, raising a feminist son does not mean raising a boy unshaped by sexism. It means raising your son to think critically about the messages he gets from the world. He will shape himself from there. Raising a feminist son means being honest that the world is an unfair place and that all the fairness he witnesses is just people choosing to do the right thing. Learning that equality and justice is a choice we make shows not only where we have room to grow, but all that we have built so far. And he will need that pride and hope. Our feminist son had a dad and a mom who were feminists, and our household culture was one of acceptance and tolerance for all races and sexual persuasions. It wasn't a drumbeat lecture atmosphere, but just one where he could observe what the grown-ups thought and accepted, and it became a part of him. His dad and I both worked full-time and shared his care and chores at home. His dad never referred to babysitting his own son, as though it was an extra duty normally reserved for women. Women were never spoken about as a less capable or important sex. He observed us pooling our financial resources in joint accounts and making financial decisions together. Hey there, Sarah and Propaganda listeners. So, I have a four-year-old daughter, and feminism influences a lot of my guiding values and decision-making as a parent. She's at a developmental stage where she's very interested in whether people are boys or girls, so we talk a lot about how you can't tell just by looking at someone what their gender is. And um, I also try, though I'm certainly not perfect at it because gendering people is a deeply ingrained habit, I try to model using gender neutral pronouns and language when referring to people whose gender I don't actually know, uh, which is basically everyone that I don't know personally. I'm not sure she totally gets it because explaining gender to a tiny human who lives in a very gendered world is difficult, but I trust that doing this now will help her have a more complex and expansive understanding of gender later. Um, It's not always easy, but I think it's worth it, both for her well-being and because it contributes to the vision of a more just and equitable world that I strive toward in basically everything I do. Thanks! advice from Aaron, Allison, Mike, Jan, Tamar, Hillary, Lisa, Jennifer, Nick, Christiana, Lex, and Aya. Thanks so much to everyone who called in or sent us an email with your ideas. Propaganda is produced by nonprofit independent Bitch Media. Our feminist response to pop culture is entirely funded by our community. Love our work and want to pitch in? Become a member. Join hundreds of fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators. And when you do, you'll receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all of our podcast shows and music reviews straight to your inbox. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. Of all the things that it's tricky to talk about with kids, sexuality and gender presentation is right up there at the top of a lot of parents' lists. That's why Kristen Russo and Danielle Owens-Brown put together their book, titled proudly, This is a Book for Parents of Gay Kids. With its bright orange cover and bold title, you can't miss the book on the shelf, and it offers straightforward, positive advice on navigating the waters of being an LGBTQ-friendly parent. It's really helpful for all parents, I think, and I got the chance to call up Kristen and ask her for advice on talking about queerness with your family, regardless of who you are. Hi, my name is Kristen Russo. I run LGBTQ organizations, Everyone is Gay, and My Kid is Gay. And I also just started a new project called Our Restroom, which helps take uh, gender markers off of single stall restrooms in businesses and in bars. That's a, that's a really exciting venture. You also have a new podcast that I feel like I you do. need to tell us about. I do. I'm really excited. I didn't know. I didn't know if I could go there. I... <laughs> 
I have a new podcast that I do with my wife, Jenny Owen Youngs. Um, we are episode by episode discussing Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, it's called Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Oh, God. And, yeah, it's pretty good. She, Jenny had the title of that for like a year and a half before we started the podcast. Um, but yeah, it's on iTunes and all the other places where you listen to podcasts. And what's really fun about it is we write a uh, song for each episode that sort of recaps the episode. So at the end of every season, we're going to have an album of, of song episodes. All of my wildest dreams are coming true right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. It's been really, really fun. Um, so Kristen, tell us about your family. What does your family look like um, and who's in it? Well, um, I guess my immediate family is um, my wife and I, obviously, and then um, my parents, and I have a younger sister. So um, my my like nuclear family is that the is that what we say? Is that a weird thing to say? Um, but my immediate family is um, you know my parents, my sister, and then um, now my wife and I. And so you wrote you co-wrote this book. Um, this is a book for parents of gay kids, and it's bright orange and really eye-grabbing. And I just want to ask you about the process of writing that book. Um, what made you think that was a book that needed to be in the world? Well, I was told, so it was really easy for me to, <laughs> to know that it was needed. Um, so through my work with Everyone is Gay, you know, we would go to, we would obviously engage with people online and have conversations with them um, in the internet space. But we also started touring, going to high schools and, and universities uh, in 2010 as well. And um, people over and over again, young people would come up to us and say like, Hey, we love what you're doing. It's super awesome. Can you do something like this for my parents? Can you make a video for my parents? Can you, you know, write stuff for my parents? Because the way a lot of um, people sort of said, like, you know, the way you approach the issues is accessible, uh, in a way that we think would have an impact with our families. And so our first instinct was, well, there must be stuff out, like there must be other resources. And so, you know, we did some Googling and some preliminary searching and, of course, found PFLAG, um, which has been around since the 70s. Um, but apart from, like, PFLAG and a handful of other um, smaller websites, there wasn't really anything. And a lot of the books that we found were super, super somber in their approach. The, their whole core was sort of like, this super sad thing has happened to you as a parent. Your child has come out and, like, we're going to help you through this bad thing. And um, Danielle, who was my business partner at the time, and I we're sort of like, this is not what we want in the hands of families. And also, like, the conversation has changed. Of course, we still have families who, who are struggling, but we also have a lot of families who are just like, I have questions, but, like, I'm cool with this. I just, like, need to know some information. One thing I've been thinking a lot about is how much as adults we have to unlearn homophobia, mm. whether it's latent or unconscious that's, that's in our minds from our culture. And so I'm wondering, how, how do you recommend um, changing the future so that we don't have to do that? How, <laughs> how do you recommend talking to very, very young kids from when they're born about gender differences, differences in sexuality, and so that the next generation of kids uh, is raised with less unlearning they have to do and more straightforward acceptance that both gender and sexuality are our spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that it's like twofold, right? That part of it is bringing um, bringing these ideas into your family and into your child's life in in ways that are much more accessible to us than they ever have been. You know, having books in your household that show many different variations of what a family can look like, having books in your household that have um, characters who are exploring and playing with their like gender expression and their gender identities. Those are all really positive ways for you to sort of um, give your child or your children tools to say, oh, you know, things are, things are fluid. Things are not maybe what they seem out there in, um, in mass culture. And I think that's the other part of this is sort of talking about what we see in mass media, um, and, and really looking at it saying, don't you think it's interesting that like in this headline, they put the girl in pink and they put the boy in blue. Like, why do you think they did that? And like, let's talk about that. And let's talk about it, that in the context that we now have with these like books and other things that we have in our household. So it's sort of like, you know, you can't just, I don't think that it's possible to just raise a child by saying like, hey, gender isn't a thing. <laughs> Go out there, have a good time. Because, um, you know, the world is out there and you have to also give them the tools to kind of question and negotiate and navigate those things. Um, 
And I think, I mean, I think that's, that's how I got to the place I am is that I had, um, I had parents, but even, even more so than my parents, I had some teachers who really said, question everything. And I do. And it it is amazing what you find when you question everything. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the conversation around families and queerness talks a lot about pretty, pretty homophobic families who are not accepting of their kids and navigating that. Um, but I want to talk more about parents and families who are maybe think of themselves as open-minded or think of themselves as progressive, Mm -hmm. but still have some trouble wrapping their minds around gender and sexuality expressions. So what are some questions or challenges or pushback you get from progressive parents on these issues and how do you navigate those? You know, one of the biggest things that I have seen as a, as a means of like pushback from progressive parents and families is the refusal to ask questions. Um, the book was really illuminating around this issue because, you know, we thought like, oh, people are going to be just kind of either excited or like hesitant, right? They're either going to be having issues or they're going to be like, yay, this book. But um, when we sat down, we sat down to do some interviews with parents and things as we were leading up to, to release the book. And what we found was some of, uh, some of the parents who were like, well, I'm super accepting, they refused to ask any questions because I think what I gathered was that they felt very, um, they felt very much that if they had questions that would sort of signal that they were, you know, um, homophobic or that they were ignorant or that they were all of these things that they didn't want to be. And, and the only way that I've tried to navigate that is by saying, listen, I came out when I was 17. I've worked with LGBTQ communities actively for over a decade at this point. And I have a million questions still. Like it is so powerful to have questions and to ask those questions and to seek out information um, because you can't know everything. And you can be somebody who supports LGBTQ people while still wondering, hmm, but what does that mean? Or like, why is my daughter dating somebody who presents in this way? Like that's confusing to me. That's somebody, that's something I never thought of before. Or, you know, what does it mean to be transgender? There's a million answers to that question. So, so just gathering one or two answers and saying, oh, I know. And I accept, um, is, is really not all the work that you can be doing. I think you have to take it a lot further. Yeah. So it sounds like, like parents are a little nervous or anxious that they'll ask a question in a way that might make their kid think that they don't love them or don't accept them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like, obviously always having, you know, if you are having a conversation with your kid directly saying, I love you and I support you, it should always be a part of that conversation. But I know that when my own parents um, or my extended family have questions, I take that as, as another sign of support. Like they're not, you know, as long as they're not asking me with like a sneer on their face and like, you know, it's making me feel horrible. Like if they're asking honest questions to me, that means, wow, they want to learn more about me and they want to learn more about this community and me offering them answers and giving them knowledge is only going to create a, you know, a better person in the long run. So I think it's a huge uh, sign of support when people have questions. Can, can you think of some questions that you have personally been asked or that you've heard of uh, parents asking their kids that you think are really positive that you're like, oh, this is a great question to ask if, if your kid is coming out? Yeah, I mean, I think that, first of all, asking what they mean, because I think that the the common thing is like, your kid comes out and they say, I am blank. And you're like, oh, right, of course, I know what that is. And I accept you no matter what it is. So moving on. Um, But I think that, you know, when it comes to terms we use in, um, in queer and trans communities, I mean, really, in, in all communities, they mean different things to different people. And so I love if I say to somebody, oh, well, I'm bisexual or I'm queer, uh, when they come back to me and they say, well, what does that, you know, when you say that, what does that mean? Does bisexual mean that you are just attracted to men and women? What does that mean? And like, oh, no, actually, that's not what I mean by that term. Um, What I mean is I'm attracted to all genders. Oh, but why bisexual then? Bi seems to mean two, right? And then you have this whole awesome conversation um, that, that unpacks more of what your kid is saying. And I think, you know, my mom and I have had the benefit of me doing this work. So, you know, we sit down way more than I think we would have ever sat down and talk about these things because I'm like, mom, want to make a video with me and talk about the coming out process? (laughs) Um, And so we've been sort of almost forced 
to unpack a lot of these things in, in having the conversations for other people. But I think that asking, you know, what do you mean? Asking, not assuming that your child is is one thing forever, I think is really powerful too, right? Like when I came out, um, when I first came out, I came out as bisexual and I wound up coming out again as a lesbian, not because I identified even really as a lesbian, but because I, my mom was sort of like, holding out hope, right, that I would meet a man, meet a man and marry a man because I come out as bisexual. And so like, I feel like, you know, allowing your child to know that, that they might, that they might identify as bisexual, they might identify as queer, they might identify, you know, your, your kid might come out as trans and identify with he, him pronouns. And then a year later be like, you know what, actually, I still identify as trans, but I need to use they, them pronouns and like letting them know that you love them now, that you support them now, and that no matter who they are, no matter when they are these things you will support them is really really powerful because even with the most right progressive accepting parents we're always kind of afraid to come out the, for the first time and to come out again if if things shift with our sexuality or our gender when you go and speak at schools and universities all over the country um, what are some of the big questions you get from students about how to talk to their families about being lgbtq I mean, I think in terms of like what they're worried about or like some of the most common pushback things that we see um, is parents like thinking that it's a phase or thinking that their kids are too young to know. Um, that's a huge, huge thing that happens over and over again where, um, you know, parents are saying, well, you're, you're 14, so you really don't know. Or, you know, you're, you're 14, so this is just, you'll, you'll experiment and then you'll figure out who you really are, um, which, is, which is troubling, you know, because sure, like I said, you know, you, you might come out at 14 as one thing and then at 18 you might not feel like you are that thing anymore. But it certainly doesn't invalidate all those years when that was your identity. And so we try to give young people the tools to talk to their parents in that way to say, like, listen, it actually isn't about who I might be someday. It's about who I am right now. And I, and I do know who I am right now. And that's the thing that, that I'm asking you to accept. And that's the thing that I'm asking you to hear. Um, and then in terms of, you know, what kids are excited about, I mean, I think that we, we are in this time when, we're seeing ourselves reflected more and more, both in, in the news and in media. And sometimes, of course, those things are not positive, but there are a lot of really positive stories out there, right? We've seen tons of stories about like people taking, um, you know, girls taking other girls to the prom or, you know, transgender people winning homecoming queen and, and things that show that in parts of our society and parts of our world, we are starting to be able to have these conversations in a more open way. We are starting to be recognized um, and, and see ourselves also portrayed in fictional shows as complex and nuanced characters. And I think that that is really exciting to young people too, because they have things they can share with their parents, right? That they can watch these shows together. They can talk about these news items together, um, that, that there really isn't too much of a stretch to bring these topics into everyday conversation. Uh, and that's, that's really powerful. You know, that is how, that is how we change the future is we allow permission for conversations to happen. <laughs> In closing, Kristen, I'm hoping you can leave us with some wisdom. So what, <laughs> what is the piece of advice you find yourself dispensing most often to parents? Oh, listen. I think ask questions and listen. Uh, those are the two biggest pieces of advice that sort of underline uh, the answers to everything else that I say. It's just like if you are dialoguing with your child and if you are asking questions and if you're listening to those answers, then you're doing so many incredible things. I wake up My eyes are playing tricks. That was Kristen Rousseau. Look up the book that she co-wrote with Danielle Owens-Reed. This is a book for parents of gay kids. There are some people who are really good with kids. I am not one of those people. I'm always just surprised by kids and I get really awkward, like worried about the possibly high stakes of every interaction. What if something I say to a kid plants a seed and takes root in a weird way and grows into being a large and horrible thing? I'm always worried about ruining kids. So it's nice to hear from so many people, my parents included, that a way to help shape kids into feminist adults is not to worry about saying 
just the right thing at just the right time, but to expose them to lots of ideas and opinions and let them sort out for themselves what feels right and good. Instead of sweating over whether I'm getting everything perfect, I should instead flip the script and focus on them. What do they think? What are they interested in? After all, empowerment starts at home, right? Our listener note this week comes from listener Tessa Ramsey. Tessa emailed us to say, Your podcasts are uplifting and inspiring compared to the public radio that used to be my bread and butter. I have cited Bitch many times in my papers for school and constantly share those podcasts with my peers. I even had my mom donate to you for my birthday this year. Ah! (laughs) Nothing is sweeter than a mom donation. Thank you so much, Tessa. And thanks to everyone who listens to this show and shares it with their friends. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Earn your women, gender, and sexuality studies degree online. Explore the role of race, social class, age, ability, appearance, and sexual identity. Play in women's everyday lives. Join the nation of do what you love. Push up your sleeves, make the world better. Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. Thanks for listening. get some more people to interview too not just your parents <laughs> no i've i have i have interviewed people besides my parents yes okay okay <laughs> i assumed that was the case somehow okay well have a great evening sarah i just realized i said cookies and i realized i left cookies in the glove compartment of the car which has to go out and put in the freezer so <laughs>